Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Over the past year, Dave and I have explored a series of different Parkinson's disease topics each month as we count down to the fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September. And Dave, with the Congress now just a few months away, we turn our attention today to how two people living with Parkinson's view the world of research and just what they hope can be accomplished in Portland. Sarah Brigari and Pam Quinn have each lived with Parkinson's disease for decades. Sarah is an engineer and research scientist who lives in Sweden and first experienced Parkinson's symptoms as a teenager. Pam was a professional dancer living in San Francisco when Parkinson's arrived in her life over 20 years ago. And they've both given a great deal of thought to the larger questions confronting our Parkinson's community. And one of those key questions is how we determine the proper balance between money spent on research and money spent on improving the daily lives of people living with PD. We began our conversation with Sarah and Pam by exploring that very question. Pam Quinn gets us started. I feel quite strongly that it's too weighted toward research. And I don't really think anyone is looking at the big picture and evaluating it in terms of how our collective resources are spent. I mean, first we need to decide what we think that ratio should be. You know, I don't even think 20% of the pie at this point goes towards care, and, and particularly as, at least in the United States, as the baby boomers age and the development of this disease grows exponentially, we need a lot more emphasis on management and on care. And I, I think that that needs to be looked at more uh, carefully and humanely. So, Sarah, th- there's a distinction made sometimes between disease-modifying treatments and symptom-modifying treatments. Do you think that's a meaningful distinction for patients like us, or is that something more that means something to researchers? I, I think you have a point there, and I agree that it's, as patients we don't really care in, in, in the day-to-day management of disease, we just want to be as well as we can be. And, of course, disease modifying is sort of the, the more technical term for what we call a cure, in a way, or like a, a slowness of the progression. But there are lots of things that can be both. And that's, of course, the best thing, to have both symptom treatment and, and disease modifying or a cure. But... We're not quite there yet, are we? You know, exercise is the only disease-modifying practice we know of, and and that's really profound. And I, I think given that reality, you know, we need people being trained all over the country in basic PD-101 classes that train teachers of exercise into how to handle the idiosyncratic nature of PD and our various symptoms. And, you know, we need hotlines for motivation. We need transportation to bring people to classes. We need places for them to happen. That too much money is spent on symposiums and not enough on implementation of research. You know, like when I speak at a conference or David Finney or David Leventhal or whoever, we give people a wonderful experience. And then we leave them. (laughs) And we need to develop programs that have a deeper impact on people's lives through having continuous benefit that that they can benefit from, something that's ongoing and sustainable and useful. 
completely agree with you there, Pam. And, uh, and exercise, I see the benefit of exercise as profound and, and quite essential. And also that I keep myself medicated enough to be able to exercise so that I can keep, keep as well as I can be. And, yeah, I mean, I feel that the, the research is there, certainly. We all know that. But it's just sitting on the desk. It needs to jump off the page and be implemented in, in reality. Let me pick up on that point just for a moment, if I might, Pam, about what the research says and what it doesn't. You said a moment ago that exercise is the one thing we have that can be disease-modifying, but that can also be viewed in Even the words disease-modifying can be viewed in different ways. In other words, there are some in the research world who would say, well, we don't really know that exercise is disease-modifying. We don't really know if it's altering the biological course of the disease, that it's altering the, the pathology of Parkinson's. So we know it's helpful in terms of symptom management, but we don't really know if it's modifying the disease. There are others who would argue, look, if it in fact allows people to lead a more independent life, if it allows people to function in a, in a way that's more satisfying, if it allows people to not have to move into an assisted living facility, well, that, in fact, that is disease-modifying. So I'm curious, Pam, especially given your life as a, as a professional dancer for so many years, how you view that term, disease-modifying? Well, that's a good question. How I view that term, I think, does enter into a quality of life as well as a quantifying, as well as a measure of how well one is doing, so that you're talking about enjoyment of life, and which is connected to facility by, by all means. I think that if you look who are the outliers in our group, what common denominator do they have? This has to do with addressing this question of disease modifying. And you look at the John Balls, you look at the Davis Spinney's, you look at most of the people I know who have maintained themselves for extended periods of time have all been involved in some form of exercise. Now that's, you know, not a study per se. I mean, but I can't help but think that it affects the actual uh, chemical process of the disease, as well as the mental process and feeling of the individual, which in turn can have a positive effect on the disease as well. That's a very unscientific answer, but that's kind of where I am. I I sort of get the feeling also that the the exercise is measured towards a a higher standard than other treatments, so that exercise has to prove itself twice as well as to be able to measure up in a way because for reasons I don't even understand, but it seems like exercise is sort of saying, yeah, yeah, that's, that may be good, but it's, it's not treatment. So that's a problem in this as well, I think. I think that's a really interesting point, Sarah, and perhaps you could both speak about this. Um, you, you mentioned a moment ago, Pam, uh, John Ball and Davis Finney, both, both athletes. You, of course, also um, as a dancer, I'm curious if if you would talk a little bit each more personally about how each of your life experiences with Parkinson's has informed where you think we ought to go as a community and where research perhaps ought to be aimed. 
Can you speak a little bit about that first, Pam, in terms of what you've, from your experience as a dancer, what that's taught you about how we can best live with Parkinson's and why that ought to get more attention in terms of both research and the dollars that go into providing care and, and, and assistance for, for people living with Parkinson's? Well, I think my dance background has provided me with a tremendous advantage, um, not only in terms of being, have a certain amount of body awareness, but in terms of being very familiar with working with music as a cueing system because rhythm is a, a really important element that helps facilitate our movement. But in addition to that, there's the culture of dance, which involves taking class every day to improve your body. And that becomes a way of life that you're always challenging yourself to figure out how you can do better. And coming from that culture makes what might seem like work to some people play to me. That's, it's just how I approach life. So having that background of physical action and physical examination and relationship to music, all those things combined in addition to the fact that I had early onset, which may make things progress more slowly, um, they've all helped me with TV. But added to that is a social factor. I think that isolation is a killer. And that people, the social factor, the ex opportunity to exchange, the interaction that happens amongst people with TV is also a very critical part of health. And I would say those two things, the Use it or lose it factor with movement and the social the opportunity to exchange with other people, keep your mind active, to have fun. Those are some of the most important things that I think help, help keep a quality of life going with this disease. And Sarah, can you pick it up from there in terms of your own life experience? And I guess what I'm specifically interested in hearing more about is, as Pam was describing this, it made me think further about this question of what the research world can learn from the patient experience. You said a moment ago that we tend not to look at, at exercise, perhaps, as being as serious science as, as something that might be in a laboratory. And, I wonder if you would talk about that a little bit more from your own point of view about how the patient experience, how your own patient experience and patient experience in general ought to be taken perhaps more seriously and used to inform the direction of research. Sure. So I've, I've not had the background Pam has in terms of physical uh, occupation or similar. Uh, my symptoms started as early as when I was 13, and so I basically kept away from physical activity as much as I could because of the effort it took to do it. So I sort of turned to being intellectual and using my brain instead of some sort of compensation, which, interestingly enough, probably has, has something to do with, with my slow progression, but I actually kept my mind active as well as not being completely inactive body-wise. But then, uh, so I, I trained as an engineer, Chemical engineer, not easy to, to do the lab work, I can tell you, with, with rigid uh, wrists and a difficult gait, but th there you go. It, it wasn't easy, but I, I, I made it through. 
And then I worked for 14 years in environmental industry, environmental assessment area, until I six years ago decided that I wanted to combine my patient experiences with my engineering skills and try to improve things for myself and others with chronic diseases. So I figured I would. I needed to learn a bit about this world, the healthcare, health research world. So I turned to Karolinska Institute, of course, living in Stockholm. But that's a natural thing to do. So I'm now a doctoral student at Karolinska at the Health Informatics Center, and my topic of research is healthcare for Parkinson's disease. So basically, I'm living well to be able to teach others how to live well with Parkinson's disease and learning from others as well and implementing it and trying to make research of it. So your, your point about research being different and that the patient's voices need to be more implemented and used, they work, it's something I, I do every day and try. It's not easy, as to be said, but it, it makes things so much more important and it puts everything else in, in, into context in such a good way to start doing it and you see that you can't do it any other way. Sarah, take us inside the clinical process. How long do most Parkinson patients spend with their neurologists each year and how much of a limitation is this? Yes, so this is something starting from my own experience. I started thinking about how much time I spent with my neurologist and figured out that I see him once or twice a year, about half an hour every time. So that's one hour per year. And the rest of the year, 8,765 hours I spend in self-care. And then I wanted to know, is this the same for others with people with Parkinson's in Sweden? So I made a survey that I'm, I'm working on to publish very shortly. And the survey showed that 68% of my respondents have one hour or less with their neurologist which means that it's only during this one hour that we're in contact with the, with the clinical practice. And it's only during this one hour that our neurologists can observe our symptoms and, and, and also see what the effects of the treatment they prescribe are. Is. And it's all, during all these 8,765 hours in self-care that we ourselves can observe our symptoms and also implement the treatment. Because as we know, all four of us, our neurologists don't even know if we take our medications or not. So in managing this self-care, how much of a role can new technology, these wearable sensors that are out there play? I mean, have they satisfied your expectations or have they been a bit of a disappointment? <laughs> they can play a huge role if they're done right and in a good way. But so far, they have proven quite disappointing, I must say, unfortunately. I've been a very much a believer in apps and technology and devices, and I still do. I still use them. I still research them. But it's proven to me much, much more difficult to do it right than I thought it would be. Because it's simply, first you have to know what is it that we want to measure. And in Parkinson's, we don't really know what we want to measure. I mean, if you have diabetes, you measure your blood sugar. But in Parkinson's, it's not that easy to measure. I'm not saying that diabetes is an easy disease, but they haven't measured that that is somewhere to start. And the first thing is, what do I want to measure? And what kind of question do I want to answer with, with this measure? And that's sort of all over the place right now. Nobody really knows. And we all just have one view. We patients, we want to do something else. So it's, it's really, really a mess in this. There is a huge potential, but it's not been realized yet. So one of the things which I think we all want to know is how to use our medication in the most optimal way. Can these devices help us find that out? In theory, yes. I use 
tapping test, different kinds of tapping tests, simply looking at finger function as a proxy to medication effect. It's not ideal, but it seems to work for me anyway. But then again, I mean, to, to do a tapping test several times a day, it takes a lot of effort. It's not something you want to do every day. And then to also keep track of your medication and timings. That's what I do anyway, to keep track of them, but also to record them and then make graphs and, and analyze it. Just too much hassle. It's, it's not worth it in the, in the long run. What I do is I tend to look at periods when, when I think I need, either when I have changed my medication doses, when I sort of have make an observation that I need to change or check something, then I have a period of more intense self-observation in different ways, tapping testing one of them, but also simply doing this body check now and then and sort of in a more conscious way. But that's not something I, I do myself every day, and I wouldn't expect anyone else to do it every day either, because it's, when you feel well enough, you just want to get on with life. I think in terms of the quality of life, I think people need to ask themselves, when am I at my best? What are the circumstances surrounding me? Am I outside? Am I inside? Am I with people? Am I alone? Am I reading? Am I running? You know, what makes each individual tick? And conversely, when am I at my worst? Am I frustrated? Am I tired? And then if you can sort of analyze each circumstance and try to reproduce that in your life so that you're taking hold of how you function the best and when you're happiest and try to recreate that. I think that helps uh, deal with the quality of your life as well as is my stride longer, is my, are my fingers more coordinated or whatever. Completely agree there. I'm interested in how you both think this sort of perspective, the insights that both of you have and other patients have, ought to be better utilized in the research world. In other words, are there specific things that you would like the research community to do to take advantage of the insights that you have, that other patients have, that would inform the direction of research? And if so, how could that happen? How could patients be involved in pointing research in a particular area, or perhaps being involved in making decisions about what kind of research gets funded? I'm just interested in how you might each have thought about putting these insights into practice, into a way of informing the direction of future research. Pam? Well, I think that the needs of each stage of the disease need to be articulated so that then the problems that are that come up can be addressed. I mean, for someone who is uh, having dementia on the cusp of that, and their needs are obviously totally different from someone who's been newly diagnosed who's involved in trying to hide their disease so they can keep their job. And I think that we need to go through the progression of the disease, articulate what the issues are at each stage, and then say, okay, you know, how can we help people at each stage? point in the disease, because particularly for the people in advanced stages, they have no voice. They have no one who's really speaking up for them except maybe their caretakers. And so that's one thing that I think needs to be 
specified and expressed and looked at more carefully. What are your thoughts on that, Sarah, about how there could be a more direct role for uh, the patient voice in the direction of future research? To me, uh, if you think about it, all the medical research being done to date is primarily done for the sake of research, secondarily for the sake of healthcare, to improve healthcare, and thirdly, if at all, for the sake of individual patients. And that led to a lot of great results, a lot of great progress that we have today. But there needs to be a complementary perspective, and that is starting from the individual patients and going the other direction as a complement, not instead of, but as a complement. And that's not easy because that's, the research world is not equipped for that, not in, in terms of funding structures, not in terms of publication structures, not in terms of status or, or anything, really. So it's not easy. But it, 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 when we succeed in, in doing that, when we succeed in taking the perspective of individual patients and doing it N of one times many, that is one person's view, and then we multiply it by many people's views or experiences or results, then we will be able to reach progress and, and, and results that we've never seen before and we can't even dream of today. I think patients have a real insight as to the things that bring quality of life. I think even if every uh, neurology office or hospital or doctor's office, even if they had a patient committee that was informing them of, of ideas, like a month ago I went to my doctor and I said, why don't we have a wine and cheese event for newly diagnosed patients so they don't have to commit to a support group. They can go to a place anonymously. They can get information from other patients who've had the disease for a long time. And it can be just an informal thing that happens three or four times a year that's there for them. I mean, that, that kind of idea that can be fed to the neurology community, because patients have their finger on the pulse of, of what our needs are often in a more um, specific way. John? So finally, guys, I'm wondering what you think you want to see discussed at the WPC in Portland in September. You had a chance, I'm sure, to look at the, the programme. Do you think some of these things we've been talking about are going to get some time there, and, or do you think there's some things missing that you'd like to see discussed? Well, I think that it would be great if we had a patient platform if we had an opportunity to say these are the things that we think need to be happening and um, how can we all address them as a community. We all want better lives. We're in this together. Let's work together. I did look through the program briefly before this conversation. Uh, have a few suggestions. As I noticed, there's a new Stanley Fon Young Investigator Award, and we're all working for a two-prong approach. We're working for research and we're working for care. So why don't we have a, an award for the Steve DeWitts, the Karen Daffys, the Oli Westheimers, the Sarah Regardis, the David Leventhal's, the Tom Isaacs, the John Kaufmans, and the David Iverson of the world. I mean, these are people who have significantly impacted people's lives. And I think that's another way to recognize the patient involvement. I know there is a exercise of treatment um, category, which is 
uh, hey, the fabulous people, Fehoa, Giselle Kessinger among them. And one of the goals is to suggest practical means of integrating exercise into people's lives. Well, why don't they have any patients there saying, well, why those patients do this and why they don't do that? And what makes them gravitate towards one activity and, and not another? And then one more thing, on Tuesday, there's an interdisciplinary care uh, discussion. And there are 11 specialists in each category and one patient among them. And I know from my perspective, I get a lot of my information from other patients because that's who I can get access to. I can't reach my doctor, you know, generally speaking. It's, It's much harder to. But I go to my patients as a resource for information because they have the experience with certain things. It's easy for me to get a hold of them. So I think that they should be more integrated and into the program as much as possible. Sarah? Sure. I remember from the previous Congress in Montreal in 2013 how patients basically stood up in all the sessions and almost preached the exercise as an important aspect of, of our, our treatment of our lives and, and a necessary aspect of it. And I hope that this Congress, which I'm looking forward to immensely, I'm, I'm really looking forward to going to Portland, both for, for the city itself, which I've heard is, is a beautiful place, but also to meet all the people, I, all my friends, old friends, new friends, everybody I know will be there, basically. But I, I hope that this year, this Congress, that sort of message also has reached into the clinical world and that the, the researchers and clinicians and all the allied health professionals that are there also talk more about exercise this time than they did in Montreal. I also would like to say that I appreciate this is the most patient-centric conference we have. <laughs> and it's a fabulous event. And I'm so happy that patients are able to contribute and welcomed into the process. And I think we just need to build on that. Let me ask just one last thing of of each of you, which is kind of the flip side of the question John posed about what would you like to see talked about. I'm interested in whether or not you think there are things that, that won't get talked about, but that probably should. I'm interested in whether or not either of you think there are there are topics that we, we tend to avoid that really ought to get a, a, a fuller discussion. Sarah, any, any thoughts on that? Sure. One thing I think about when you, when you ask that is why hasn't research reached further than it has? That's something that's sort of a bit taboo because we don't want to bite the hand that feeds us in a way. And we, we really rely on researchers to, to help us through this. But at the same time, they have a different timeline than we do. And I fully respect that they have their careers and their day-to-day life to think about. But for us, this is our life. And it's happening now. We need to make the most of it. So one thing I've tried to do is to increase the understanding in the clinical world and also in other types of uh, related areas. I've been working with people to do something we call Parkinson's One Day, where people can experience Parkinson's for a day to learn and understand better what, what, what we face and how, how, how that affects our life. It's been quite popular, and, and several people have, have done this on a one-to-one basis. And that's something we also will take to the Congress and allow people to try it for themselves. But that's one thing that I think is, 
is it the taboo? And another thing is, of course, that you mentioned, these, these more darker symptoms like the impulse control disorders that are much, much more frequent than reported, of course, because that's not something we usually talk to our doctors about. And other sort of uh, depression and different hallucinations and stuff that can affect how, how we can actually live our lives in terms of driver's license, uh, relationships, and other things. And that's those are difficult issues, and they, they are being talked about more and more, but it, it needs to be even more open. I think that how to plan for the future is not dealt with. And we're all scared of, of dementia. We can't get long-term health insurance because we've already been uh, diagnosed with a disease. Are all our savings going to go down the drain in the care that we need and we're not going to be able to pass anything on to our children? What kind of living situation are we going to need? How are we going to pay for it? In the United States, you know, all these gaps are sort of handled within families on a case-by-case basis, but there's little systematically done to deal with the aging process. And this isn't only true for Parkinson's, but it's just sort of upon us in, in a more direct and focused manner because we know what it's like to feel old. <laughs> That's how we feel every couple of hours when our meds wear off. And I think that how to plan for the future and what our options are is not being thought of or designed or uh, dealt with. Well, Pam and Sarah, thank you both so much. I'm so glad we could get both of you on together, and I'm glad we can add this perspective um, to this series. It's, um, it's really valuable. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That was Pam Quinn and Sarah Rogari. And John, I found each of their comments so insightful in so many ways, and a reminder that it's not that the point of view necessarily of researchers and those of patients are diametrically opposed, but it reminded me that we need to still work so hard, I think, at making them intertwined that much more closely so that patients can play a real role in advocating for the direction of Parkinson's research. Absolutely, Dave. As Sarah said, clinicians see us for about an hour a year. For more than 8,000 a year, we rely on self-care. Patients like us are therefore a vital source of information about the disease and what helps. Exactly. And I think there's also this need to have, I think, a, a kind of harder conversation about where that research ought to best be focused. I mean, of course, as we all feel, the, the ultimate goal is to find a, a cure or at least a way to slow down disease progression. But as they both noted, from a patient point of view, if you could find something that just helps you live well today, especially for those of us who are already, you know, some distance into the disease, that matters a great deal because the truth is that even if we get a disease-modifying drug on the market in the next 10 years, you and I and a fair number of others are going to be fairly far along by then. So we need to really focus on the here and now, too. Absolutely. And I hope we get into some of these issues in Portland in September. Right. And as, as Pam rightly noted, the WPC is the most patient-friendly gathering of, of any of the Parkinson's uh, conferences. And so I do think it's the perfect venue uh, for us to explore uh, some of these issues further. And that, of course, will be coming up uh, in just a couple of months' time. Until next time on the Portland Countdown, I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman.
Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.